Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Everybody loves an underdog, don't they? There's nothing better than watching someone leap from relative obscurity to global superstardom. Like when Olivia Coleman won her Best Actress Oscar. She was a UK TV actor who was barely known in the US one year. And then the next year, she's one of the most sought-after actors in Hollywood. Or when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her first congressional campaign against one of the highest-ranking Democratic congressional reps. As everyone knows, she went from being a bartender to being one of the most famous politicians in the world, practically overnight. I'd give you a sports example here, but I don't know anything about sports. Sorry, not my thing. Anyway. There are stories about people seemingly exploding onto the international stage out of nowhere in almost every industry. And we all love it. It's like watching someone win the lottery. They're defying the harshest odds and the lowest expectations to reach the highest echelons of their industries. But if I asked you to name a musical example of someone who had that kind of career trajectory, would you ever think of Billy Joel? the man who is one of the best-selling artists of all time, over 160 million albums sold, someone who's so famous, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't know his music. But there was a time when dominating the charts for decades did not seem to be on the cards for him, and his career was on a knife's edge. Okay, maybe that's a little dramatic because he already had a pretty sizable following at the time, and a couple of hits under his belt, but that almost makes his story more amazing. The album that sparked his meteoric rise to fame didn't happen at the start of his career. It actually happened when he was already well-established. Well, right up to that point, we had been building for many years, since really since 1970. We started out in the clubs. We started out as a opening act for other headliners. We played small colleges, toured all around the country. There were four albums before that album came out. So we had a following that we were aware of. We had our strong areas and areas that we hadn't really developed yet. And we were pretty much on a gradual build and very happy with the way things were going. You know, I don't recall particularly feeling oh, this is going to be the breakthrough. We were just happy with the album we were making at the time. He'd already released four albums, and he'd had a top 40 hit with Piano Man, a song that would become his signature, and a mainstay in his live shows for his entire career. Not exactly languishing in obscurity, right? But a string of bad luck and disappointing album sales kept him stuck with incremental career progression. If he was going to keep his recording contract, he needed a huge era-defining hit that could make him a household name. I bet you can guess what happened next. 
I mean, I wouldn't have much of a story to tell if he never had that monster hit. And fortunately for his career as a musician and my career as a podcaster, his next album proved to be exactly what he needed. It was an album packed with hits that have dominated the international cultural landscape for the last four and a half decades, and it cemented Billy Joel's legacy as one of the greatest and most successful musicians in entertainment history. And that album was, of course, his 1977 masterpiece, The Stranger. This season of The Opus, we're celebrating The Stranger's greatness as it reaches its 45th anniversary. We'll explore the events that led to its creation, the studio magic that brought it all together, the songs that are burned into our collective memory, and the incredible career it helped to create. And in this episode, we'll take a look at Billy's career before The Stranger. The obstacles he overcame, the years on the road that honed his craft, and the legendary series of gigs at Carnegie Hall that allowed the stars to align in his favor. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Adam Ongs, and this is The Opus. Once I used to believe I was such a great romancer that I came home to a woman that I could Billy Joel was making music long before his solo career kicked off. He was playing in bands from the time he was a teenager. In fact, he was so dedicated to his musical pursuits that his scholastic endeavors came to a screeching halt. This was like 64. That was in high school. And I was actually making money. The problem was, when I was going to high school, I had a phony draft card so I could work in bars in the band. And um, I'd work late at night, and then school would start the next day at 7 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't get up. I just could not wake up. And I'd come into school maybe halfway through the day, and my eyes would be all bloodshot. And the teachers would go, uh... Oh, Joel, you know, they thought I was stoned, you know, they thought I was taking all kinds of drugs. The principal calls me down. He goes, Joel, you're taking marijuana. I said, what do you mean I'm taking marijuana? He goes, let me see you roll up your sleeves. And I go, you don't shoot marijuana, you smoke it. He goes, aha, how do you know? I didn't graduate high school for that reason. Billy spent his late teens playing in bands like Lost Souls, The Hassles, and Attila before setting out on his solo career. He recorded a few demos of songs that would end up on his debut album, Cold Spring Harbor, and they got the attention of musical impresario Artie Rich, who signed Billy to his company, Family Productions. They headed into the studio to record the album, with Artie Rich acting as both Billy's manager and the album's producer. Billy hated the recording process, and it eventually became clear that Artie was out of his depth. In fact, he ended up making a gigantic infamous mistake 
that made Billy's voice entirely unrecognizable in the finished product. While he was mastering the album, Artie Rich sped up the recording, making Billy's voice sound significantly higher. When he heard it, Billy thought he sounded like Alvin and the Chipmunks. I knew he had had a record, this famous record that was sped up by this manager, producer, whatever he was. This is Phil Ramone, who produced The Stranger and many other hit albums for Billy. As an engineer, I'd gone through that with a couple of very, what we call, hot, lucky producers who used to put that little turn on the, on the tape machine and have it speed up just this much. And of course, if they had a hit, God forbid, every record from there on out was sped up. There was something about this edge that came. And with Billy, it wasn't a help because Billy, his tenor voice is really up there. So God forbid you speed it up, it becomes almost a cartoon. Of all the people in the world that I know, you're the best place to go when I cry, when I cry. I never asked for much before, not before, things are changed. I need more. Tell me why, Judy, why? Do you hear that? It doesn't sound that bad, does it? But to Billy's ears, it was a disaster. All of that hard work poured into something that was supposed to introduce his music to the world, and it didn't even sound like him. It was a huge disappointment. And Billy knew that he had to get away from Artie Rich if he was going to record the kind of music he really wanted to make. The only problem was that he had signed a 10-album contract that gave Artie Rich full control over his entire current and future catalog. Billy knew he had to do something drastic, so he packed up his life, got into a car with his girlfriend Elizabeth and her young son, and drove across the country to Los Angeles so he could effectively hide from Artie Rich long enough that he'd be forgotten or his contract would be terminated. Wild, right? I've heard of artists going to extreme lengths to get out of restrictive and unfair contracts. You know, Prince changing his name to a symbol, Taylor Swift re-recording her entire back catalog. But Billy going into the musical equivalent of the Witness Protection Program is some next level stuff. Billy couldn't release any new music until he wiggled out of that contract, but he could still play and write. So he took a job for six months as a lounge singer at the executive room on Wilshire Boulevard under the name Bill Martin. In any other artist's career, a six-month stint in a piano bar probably wouldn't register much in the grand scheme of things. But for Billy, it became one of the defining periods of his life. Can you guess why? After he wriggled free of his restrictive contract, he recorded a song about that chapter of his life that has become his signature song and one of the most recognizable songs in pop history. That song, of course, is Piano Man. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. A regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me making love to his tonic and gin. I'm not really sure how it goes But it's sad and it's so 
When the Piano Man album was released, the title song became Billy's first hit record, reaching number 25 on the charts. Columbia Records wanted to keep the momentum going, so they pushed Billy to get his second album out as soon as possible. I say second because no one wanted to acknowledge the unsuccessful Cold Spring Harbor as Billy's debut album. So, in effect, his next release would be his sophomore album, a notoriously difficult chapter in every musician's career, in an effort to recreate and capitalize on Piano Man's success. Its producer, Michael Stewart, was brought back in to help rush Billy's new album through the recording process and into stores. As with Piano Man, Stewart brought in session musicians to record Street Life Serenade, as it would come to be called. Billy desperately wanted to record with his road band, a group of musicians that knew exactly what his songs should sound like. They played with him night after night and could almost communicate with each other telepathically. And although Street Life Serenade didn't bomb on its release, it was still considered a critical and commercial disappointment. So Columbia decided to bring in the big guns for its follow-up. First, Billy is recording these songs for Turnstiles with Jim Gersio producing him. Liberty DeVito toured with Billy Joel and played on a number of his albums, including The Stranger. Jim Garcia owned Caribou Ranch. She produced Elm John, but the Beach Boys did a lot of stuff like that. And uh, that didn't work out. Billy threw the tapes in the trash, fired Garcia, and uh, came out to Long Island and went in the studio with me and Doug. I was in a band called Topper. It was myself, Russell Travers, Doug Stagmeyer, and Howard Emerson. We were doing all original material. Russell was writing all the songs. And Doug was called to go and play on Billy's Street Knife Serenader tour. On that tour, Billy was living in, in California. He wanted to move back to New York. And at the time, he was using studio musicians to make the records and a different band to play with him live. And he told Doug, I want you to come with me back to New York. And I want to use the same band. I want to put together a band that I use to record the records. And they go on the road with me, too. And then he said, I want a New York style drummer. That meant aggressive, you know, the way New York is. And Doug said, well, you know the guy. So we go in the studio, just me, Doug, and Billy. And as we were listening back to the songs, sometimes Billy would say, like, you know, I'd like to have some guitar on here. It'd be nice. And we said, well, we know guitar players. And it was we brought in Russell and Howard. So Topper became Billy Joel's band with the addition of Richie Cannata on saxophone. It was really bright of Billy to do that because people said when they first heard us on the Turnstiles tour, they were like, God, this band is so tight. Of course, we were playing for years already together. So he just took this band and, and made us his band. I actually like to think of it as Topper got a guy that could write songs, sing and play piano. Billy had made all these monumental changes in his life. He fired Jim Gersio, hired his wife Elizabeth as his manager, and moved back to New York to record what would become Turnstiles with an incredible band. But there was one critical piece missing, a producer. So he decided to hire the one person who would definitely understand his vision. Himself. And that decision produced mixed results. The Piano Man album and the Street Life Serenade album were done with session players. I was not happy with 
the session players. They were all good musicians, but there was no organic feel to them because they were all just put together in the studio. And I kind of wanted a rougher approach to things. Trance Styles, which was just prior to The Stranger, um, started out with a, a couple of different producers who just didn't work out. And I ended up producing it myself. And I'm not a technical expert at producing albums. I just know what I'm looking for, but I always know how to get it. Turnstiles was the guys who were with me on the road, but I didn't know how to capture what I was looking for. The Turnstiles recording process was much more enjoyable to Billy than the previous albums, and he was really satisfied with the end result. The album marked a homecoming for him. It was mostly recorded in New York, it featured a tight band of mostly New York musicians, and it was packed full of songs celebrating his home turf. Although Turnstiles proved to be an even greater commercial disappointment than Street Life Serenade, it produced several songs that are central to Billy's live sets to this day, including a New York anthem that has become one of his best-known and best-loved songs. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. But I'm taking a Greyhound on the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind He didn't have the smash hit album he'd hoped for, but Billy was still in a good place and he felt like he had the wind at his back. He toured with the Turnstiles album and saw how much his fans were responding to the live shows. Everything felt fantastic, and neither Billy nor the band had any idea that they were on quite shaky ground with their record label. This was my fifth album without having had a major hit. Piano Man wasn't really a big seller, it was just a popular radio record. Going into Making the Stranger, I didn't really know that the label was considering dropping me. So I didn't feel like it was make or break at that particular time. I was just kind of going along doing my thing, minding my own business. But now, yeah, in hindsight, I can say, yeah, it was a real important album because I might have been, you know, flushed otherwise. There was enormous pressure building up behind the scenes to produce a hit, but neither Billy nor the band knew anything about it. They were touring the world, playing to absolutely adoring crowds, and generally having the time of their lives. Twenty-four years old at the time was all about like partying. This is Liberty DeVito again. There's girls. There's traveling. You're going to cities that you've never been to before. You know, we were just having a blast. The office really kept a lot from us because they wanted us to keep going at 100. You know, you hear something like, you know, this could be the end. It's like, oh, bummer. You know, so no, we didn't get any of the bummer. We just kept on forging ahead, just kept on going and partying and going crazy. 
it, it was, was a lot of fun. That blissful ignorance allowed the band to really hone their craft. The tour turned them into the tightest, leanest group of musicians that they could possibly be, while also having a blast and bringing that spirit of fun into the music. As the tour progressed, Billy started writing some new material and ideas for a new album began to take shape. He knew that capturing the energy of the live shows was his best chance at bringing his music to a wider audience, but he needed to find the perfect producer to bring that concept to fruition. And then, out of the blue, a giant opportunity landed in his lap. When Billy broke the news to the band Liberty DeVito and all the guys were so excited. George Martin came to see us, but we were like, oh my God, George Martin, the Beatles producer is coming to see us play. We're all backstage like, this is going to be so freaking great. It's going to be unbelievable. We do the show. Billy goes to meet with George Martin after the show. Comes back to us. We're all like really excited. So Billy says, he wants to produce me. Yeah. He wants to use studio musicians in the studio. We said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I told him, love me, love my band. That's a balls move. We were good, but I, I didn't know which one. Of course, the band was excited that Billy wanted to stick with them, but they still didn't have a producer for the album. They did, however, have an incredible opportunity to make an impression. In June of 1977, they played a three-night stint at Carnegie Hall in New York one of the most revered concert venues in the world. Carnegie Hall has a reputation of being a terrific music venue for, you know, fine music. But you got to remember Benny Goodman played there and Buddy Rich. I actually saw Led Zeppelin there back in the 60s. And the Beatles played there as well. So it was an important venue, especially in New York City. Carnegie Hall is known worldwide. When you're going to headline Carnegie Hall, you know it. During those shows, the crowd definitely leaned away from fine music and into rock and roll. I mean, it was a rowdy. Billy and the band hadn't reached Beatlemania levels of fame yet, but their fans were nearly as enthusiastic. So the energy at Carnegie Hall was more than a little chaotic. There was a no smoking rule that had just been instituted at Carnegie Hall. So there's kids up in the balcony and you can see the people are smoking. They couldn't stop the show, so they turned on the lights above the balconies to show that the kids were smoking and they should put out the cigarettes. So rather than putting out the cigarettes, the kids stood up on the balcony rails and unscrewed the light bulbs. So there was a little bit of an anarchy going on in Carnegie Hall at the time, which was fun. Billy had the crowd in the palm of his hand, and he knew it. If you listen to recordings of those shows, he sounds so relaxed, so at ease, and in that warm and welcoming atmosphere in one of the best music venues ever, in the center of the city he loved most in the world. Billy gave that crowd a little taste of something he'd been working on. Now let's call it Just The Way You Are. One, two, one, two. Changing to try and please me. You've never let me down before. Mm -hmm. Don't imagine you're too familiar, and I don't see you anymore. I could not leave you. 
times of trouble We never could have come this far mm-hmm. I took the good times I'll take the bad times I'll take you just the way you are The crowd ate it right up that wasn't the only glimpse of new material Billy would offer up in that show. This is dedicated to uh, Cristiano's restaurant, it's an Italian restaurant. It's called uh, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rose instead. We'll get a table near the street in our old familiar place, you and I face to face. Mm-hmm. He brought the house down red, each of these Carnegie Hall shows. The audiences were blown away, and as luck would have it, one of those audience members was a record producer named Phil Ramone. He had produced some hugely successful artists. People like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, I mean, he was a really big deal. When Billy's team discovered that Phil Ramone was in the audience for one of the Carnegie Hall shows, they reached out to set up a lunch meeting between the two of them. I'd gotten a kind of a call from Don DeVito and a couple other people that they said, we'd love to have you meet him. You know, there's no, we want you to produce. Because I didn't know my audition was that lunch. We got along famously. His sense of humor, my anti-formality in many ways. I talked about him and the band because I'd seen this Carnegie Hall concert. And in that process, I realized how attached the band and he were. And... I felt that was an energy. That feeling was mutual. Phil Ramone said all of the things Billy wanted to hear, and he knew it was a match made in heaven from the moment they met. He expressed a desire to work with the band right off the bat. And that was real attractive to me. He said, I want to work with you guys. You're road dogs. You're not pure, 100% polished musicians, but that's what he liked. He liked the roughness of it. He liked the road aspect of it. He liked the camaraderie and the organic nature of it, and that's what he, he wanted to work to that. So I said, that's the guy, I want to work with him. I mean, he got it right away. Billy told the band about the meeting, and his enthusiasm was very obvious, but they didn't need to take his word for it. He wanted to meet all the musicians who would be joining him in the studio if they managed to seal the deal. Liberty DeVito remembers feeling just as excited about Phil as Billy had after their first meeting. After one of the shows, he came to meet us at the hotel. And he just wanted to talk to us, just have a conversation, a couple of drinks with us and stuff like that. That's the kind of guy Phil was. He wanted to know all about the person or people who was going in the studio with him. He wanted to know the personalities first before he, he knew how you could play or how you would work in the studio. He said, I want you to be the rock and roll animals you are on stage, but we're going to take it into the studio and we're going to like round it out. He wanted the energy. He just wanted to tone us down a little bit to make a record. Everyone was on board. They signed the deal, and Phil Ramone was officially brought on as the producer of Billy's next album. 
The whole band was buzzing with excitement and they couldn't wait to get into the studio. And when they did, they set about creating the biggest album of Billy's career and one of the best albums in rock history. I don't believe in first impressions. Just this once, I hope that looks don't deceive. I ain't got time for true confessions. Gotta make the move right now. Next episode of the Opus, we take a behind-the-scenes look at the Stranger Studio sessions and how Phil Ramone's involvement shaped a sound that transformed Billy Joel's career forever. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Adam Unz, and this has been The Opus. But if all it takes is inspiration, then I might have just what it takes. If I don't make no bad mistakes and I get it right the first time, because that's the main thing. Oh, I can't afford to let it pass. Get it right the next time, that's not the same thing. Oh, gonna make a The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.